Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. I'm still getting to know you, and you're still getting to know me. Please don't be shy about saying hi and uh, introducing yourself again. I'll ask uh, if I forgot your name, um, but uh, it doesn't hurt if you offer it sometimes. So uh, I'm excited to keep getting to know you, and uh, I'm just thankful to be here. I'm going to... make a, a second grievous mistake as a preacher. Last week, I opened up with, with a genealogy, which, you know, I don't know what I was thinking with that, but this week, I'm, I'm going to talk about sin. Uh, sin. They called his name Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. And I'm also going to talk about some of my sin. I was a teenager, and boy, I was an idiot. I I took my dad's axe, which was his dad's axe, and went out with some friends, and we just thought it was a hilarious idea to go and chop down some trees on some other people's property. (laughs) And uh, I had no idea what I was doing, the harm that I would cause people. There were just trees in my teenage mind. They were part of people's stories. They were planted in memory of people. They were part of their lives growing together. And so I was on house arrest for a summer. Hello, my name's Pastor Dave. I was on house arrest for a summer. (laughs) I could only go to work and home. And during that summer, something started to happen in me where I felt wrong, guilty. I didn't know what to do with it, so I just determined to not get caught again. But the feeling didn't go away. I didn't know what to do. There's uh, a lot of discussion about what to do with guilt in the modern world, but the discussion is carried on in the absence of thought about God, because many of our neighbors have decided to abandon God as the the way we orient our lives and make meaning of our lives, make sense of our lives and its direction. Uh, One of the leading voices in how to deal with guilt apart from God was a guy named Sigmund Freud. And Freud, uh, this German uh, psychologist, he called guilt the most important problem in the development of civilization. He said, the price that we pay for our advance in civilization is a loss of happiness through the heightening sense of guilt. What he was saying was, as we gain more prowess over more land, over more people, over more space, more knowledge of our environment and how things work, that knowledge comes with a responsibility, and with responsibility inevitably comes Guilt, because if you're responsible, right? You know what we do when someone comes to us. Like if you're the manager in the store and someone comes to you with a complaint and you're trying to find somebody to point to, right? I don't want to be the one responsible. But if you're responsible, then at some level you'll be guilty. And what do you do about it? Now, Sigmund Freud doesn't believe in right and wrong. He doesn't believe in a God. At least he doesn't seem to care whether he exists. He believes guilt is simply a feeling, it's like a symptom, and he wants to treat it and help you feel better, right? Many of our neighbors may feel this way. Guilt is just something I need to feel better about. It's not as though there's something real I've done wrong. 
But there's that lingering feeling of, yeah, there was something wrong. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. He wrote this, the remarkable thing is, whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you'll find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promises to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he'll be complaining, it's not fair, before you can say Jack Robinson, right? Somebody says there's no right and wrong, go and steal their TV. (laughs) Don't steal their TV, but you hear what I'm saying. We sin, that's what the Bible says. We sin, and it's a problem. But many of us don't think we need saving and forgiveness from sins. And it's not just Sigmund Freud, it's not just relativist neighbors who are embracing sort of the the, the spirit of the age. It's Christians too, because we breathe the same air And we also sin. We're not here. I'm just submitting this to you. I'll put it in I terms. Maybe that's safer. I am not here because I am right about everything. I'm here because I see in Jesus the solution for everything that's wrong about me. (laughs) We sin, even Christians. And, And if you were asked the question, what's wrong with the world, Christian? This is where I press into you if you may struggle with the notion of Christians don't believe they need saving from sins. At times we do feel that way. We may not even say it out loud, but if someone asked you what is wrong with the world, many of us would say, those people, right? It's those Republicans. It's those Democrats. It's those stinking millennials. It's the boomers, right? Those people right? And then we can fashion and follow saviors that will agree with us and say what we want to have them say, to promise us some earthly salvation, and they'll dress it up in God language, and we'll be duped, and we'll defend them until we can't, we'll be disappointed, and we'll find a new savior for the moment because we want a savior that's more imminent, that changes something closer to us than a savior for sins. I suggest this to you. The people of Israel are a lot like us. Jesus came to his people to save them from their sins. And think about their context. They are being ruled by the Romans. They have promises of a kingdom. They long to see that kingdom established on earth imminently. They long to have power. They don't have a vote, right? They want to have prominence in the world. And the savior they want is gonna come and lay the hammer down, right? So when Jesus comes, Messiah, they're excited, but perhaps not excited for the kind of savior he came to be. The problem wasn't their sin, they were thinking. The problem is those other people, it's those Romans, right? Or even among the Jews, it's those Essenes, or it's those Pharisees, or it's those Sadducees. It's the other guys. They're doing it all wrong. They're the worst. Why does it matter that Jesus saved his people from their sins? Today, I'm telling you, it matters because he makes forgiveness possible. 
That's what we need. Maybe not what we want. Jesus makes forgiveness possible. Let's pray and then we'll keep going. Father, uh, you're, you're meeting us today by your word and spirit. You're meeting us in places uh, that maybe we don't wanna go because we're talking about sin. So please come and, and minister to us. Help us to hear you. If there's any ways in which I uh, overstep or speak wrongly, I pray you'd correct that and that your spirit would make what is true shine and make Jesus shine today so we could see him clearly. We pray that in his name, amen. It matters that Jesus came to save us from our sins because first of all, forgiveness is our fundamental need as human beings. That's the first thing I wanna say to you. Forgiveness is our fundamental need as human beings. Uh, but it, it's just a funny thing because forgiveness implies guilt and what do we do about guilt? There's this essay uh, that's been kind of influ influential to me uh, just in framing my thinking about uh, our neighbors and how to talk about guilt and forgiveness among them. It's by a guy named Wilfred McClay. It's called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And, and he, he wrote this. And he's, he's, he's a wordy fellow. He's a, he's a professor of history, so forgive him. We'll try, to, we'll try to keep it simple. But he wrote this. Those of us living in the developed countries of the West find ourselves in the tightening grip of a paradox one whose shape and character have so far largely eluded our understanding. It's the strange persistence of guilt as a psychological force in modern life. If anything, the word persistence understates the matter. Guilt hasn't just lingered, it has metastasized. It's spread like a cancer into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the life of the contemporary West, even as the rich language formerly used to define it has withered. The means of containing its effects, let alone from uh, obtaining relief from it, have become ever more elusive. So in this age when we turn away from God as a way of making sense of the universe, we also turn away from God as a way of finding forgiveness and how to cope with when people wrong us and when we do wrong. And so what do we do with guilt? What do we do with it? It seems that Freud at least was right about this, that, that as we progress, as a, if, we call progr if we call turning away from God progress, which I would disagree with, as we progress as a civilization, that guilt seems to grow and we are left not knowing what to do. I mean, just think about guilt and, and how guilt is metastasizing. I was just thinking about this last night. We had some folks over and we ate chicken. Well, was that chicken locally sourced and ethically raised? Right? And then I have light bulb guilt. We're trying to replace light bulbs. Are, am I buying the most energy efficient light bulbs? And then I have parenting guilt because everybody on social media knows how to parent their children perfectly. Right? Guilt spreads, and what do we do with it? Adam and Eve, in the story of Christianity, they're our first parents. First human beings, male and female, God made them good. They were reflecting his character in the world that he'd made. And they had responsibility. He gave them dominion over the creatures. And they were naming them. They were taking care of his garden. Adam was commanded to work and to keep God's garden in Genesis 2.15. He had responsibility for it, for everything that was in it. So the day when a creature comes along and it's talking, number one, red flag, snake talking. Okay, what are you thinking, Adam? 
but he doesn't do anything. He just stands there. Eve is being deceived by the serpent furthermore, and the serpent's telling Eve not to trust the one who made them, who loves them, who walks with them in the cool of the day, but rather to trust the serpent and to trust yourself. God's hiding something from you, the serpent says, this special knowledge. And so Eve was deceived and she takes of this fruit and she eats and she gives it to Adam who eats. He was right there with her the whole time. (laughs) He didn't do anything. Responsible and guilty. And that would be the end of the story if we were the ones probably authoring it. We would probably cancel Adam and Eve But God didn't. God pursued and God gave a promise. Actually, to the serpent, he gave a promise. He says to the serpent, he says, I will give to this woman an offspring and you'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And this offspring, the people of Israel were waiting for this. This is the promise they were waiting for. They needed a savior from sins. And what do we find in Matthew chapter one? A savior. And the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. In verse 18, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Oh boy, you can't, I can't imagine. I just can't imagine. So they're betrothed, they're legally Married, but not yet having consummated that relationship. It's a different cultural thing than we have here in the States. We don't do that. But they are legally husband and wife at this point. And she's found to be with child, pregnant. Now, I don't know about you, but I can imagine a teenage girl who goes and tells her her husband-to-be or her parents or anyone, so I'm pregnant and it's from the Holy Spirit. Don't try that one. You know, right? But this one time in history, we find maybe it's true. Her husband Joseph is wrestling with this, and uh, this is a really interesting little moment in the original language. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. The word being there is a little thing called a participle in the original language, and it can be rendered a couple ways. Being is the most ordinary way uh, without trying to interpret what it means. It could mean because he was a just man, he was unwilling to put her to shame, but probably more likely, it means although he was a just man, he wouldn't put her to shame. You see, he was a law-keeping man. To be a just man in first century Israel is to be someone who keeps the law. What does the law say about a woman caught in adultery? She could be stoned. Some would say should be stoned. Certainly divorced. But although he was a just man, he cares about law. He cares about righteousness and justice, although he would have mercy. And Matthew, I think in his telling and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of this story is preparing us for the kind of righteousness that we're learning about in Jesus. It's all righteousness, and the law always keeps its hard edges. But although we sin, and in this case, Mary wasn't in sin, 
that even when we think someone's sinful, Jesus teaches us a different way of mercy. In any case, verse 20, as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a couple questions that are answered right away here, and we're gonna unpack both of them briefly. The first one, the genealogy of Jesus that we read last week leaves us with an open question. How could Jesus be the Messiah if he doesn't actually have a direct lineage to David through his father? Because there's no father for Jesus mentioned in the genealogy. Well, here we find that Joseph is going to adopt him, and Joseph is in that royal line. If you remember, Joseph was the son of Jacob, and he's the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So first of all, being adopted to Joseph, as we'll see in a bit, in an earthly sense, that makes him descended from David. But in even greater sense, there's a greater credibility Jesus needs to do what he actually came to do. Because he didn't come to be the kind of savior that they might have wanted. He wasn't just going to sit on the throne of David and crush everyone around him. He was coming to save his people from their sins. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, the angel said. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. How could Jesus be the Messiah? Well, he was adopted through Joseph, but how could he save people from sins? What could possibly give him credibility for that? We already know David. Being descended from David ain't gonna help you for that. But Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is God with us. Now, some would read this, and I would disagree with them, but uh, they would read this and say, Jesus was merely a sign that God is with us. But Matthew doesn't let you stay there, stay there and, and just think that Jesus is a sign that God is with us. Matthew's saying Jesus is God with us in flesh. Matthew 22, we find Jesus saying, I'm the one of whom David spoke when David interpreted uh, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool right? Who is the Lord that David prayed to? Jesus asks. Well, it's Jesus. Matthew 28, verse 19. We're going to see when he calls people to follow after him, to make disciples, to be baptized into the name, one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus, the Son, is one with the Father and the Spirit. One name, one substance, one God, a mystery we can't possibly understand, but we believe it's true. He has credibility to save us from our sins because he's God. <laughs> and right there, many of our neighbors would just be like, okay. Well, miracles don't happen, so that's not possible. We can't use God to explain stuff that happens in history. That doesn't work. That's what many of our neighbors believe. That's the way history works in the secular academy. But I would just invite a person like this to just wonder for a second with me, what if? Would you just invite yourself to say, what if? We've all been duped, Christians among all people, we've gotten duped perhaps more than, more than others even. 
But what if Jesus wasn't coming to dupe us? People that are coming to dupe you, they don't go and intentionally set their face toward the place they'll die and die on a cross in place of the people following them and the people crucifying him, saying, Father, forgive them. I don't know anyone who's ever duped anyone who <laughs> made that the pattern of their life. And, and frankly, for the beauty of all that Jesus is, if you take a risk and look to him, I don't know how to explain it other than if he was one with the Father. I don't know any other mere human being who, who, who comes even in the same ballpark. There are glimmers at times, but Jesus is something else. Fully God, fully man, so that he could take our penalty and he could actually be a perfect sacrifice in our place and actually pay for all of our sins. But we come back to the question of what is wrong with the world. Do we need this savior? G.K. Chesterton was a British journalist and author, and he uh, was invited to uh, respond to a newspaper's request for a little editorial from him on what is wrong with the world. And he uh, took some time, response, and the letter reads thus. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, Gilbert Keith Chesterton. What is wrong with the world? If you, if you can continue to believe that it's only other people, then perhaps you could shield yourself for a while. But if we come down to it and we realize there's something that's gone wrong right here, if we could be honest and admit we need forgiveness... Some of us shield ourselves in this way. This is a modern approach to shielding ourselves from guilt in the absence of God. And Wilfred McClay will write about it in, in that article that I mentioned earlier. One way to avoid responsibility is to, to claim to be a victim only. Um, because a victim doesn't have responsibility for what they've done, right? They've, they've been sinned against. They're not necessarily a sinner. And one thing I want to say to people who uh, perhaps uh, live in that understanding or live that out even without thinking about it, is I believe when, when God sees someone who's been sinned against terribly and out of that context, out of a bad family, out of a bad home, out of a war-torn country, out of all of the contexts in which we can be victims, and it, and it sets us up to make it really difficult to make the right choices. I think God is a gracious God, slow to anger toward you. I think he understands. Jesus understands what it's like to live in an oppressed culture. But nevertheless, we are responsible for the ways we violate love toward one another and toward God. I invite you to take a risk and not even ignore your own guilt. Christians as well, right? I'm a, I'm a victim of living under ex-president, or I'm a victim because ex didn't win the presidency, or whatever, right? It's not my fault, it's their fault. It's those guys. But Jesus came to deal with your sins and mine, and to pay for them. So I'm inviting you back to the cross. All of us, that's where we go together. We look to Jesus. What did he come to do? He came to save us from our sins. He came to die. He was born to die and to rise. 
and to invite you into a new kind of life. And it's a life that could change the world. Forgiveness, it's our fundamental need, but it also fundamentally changes the world. Think about this, think about this. If all who look to Jesus in faith, if all of us would take up forgiveness as our posture, what would happen? What would happen in the world? What would happen if a world was shaped by his character? And Jesus, in order to have credibility in this world, may have uh, you know, come riding on a, you know, a stallion with a big sword in his hand. He says he will come that way one day. But he didn't that first time. If he would have come that way, maybe he would have looked more appealing to his people. But if he was just the savior they wanted him to be, he would have been a savior for their individual people. Some of us might read that he came to save his people from their sins, and we might miss who his people were. Something that is happening in Jesus is that the people of God are finding that God is helping them fulfill their calling and God is blowing up their category for who is God's people. It's not just us. It's not just the ethnically descended from Abraham folks, but now God is doing what he was always intending to do so that all who were in Abraham might be blessed. All the families of the earth might be blessed through this family of Abraham. If that doesn't make sense to you, if you haven't heard the Bible story from the Old Testament, um, we'll catch up together over time. But Abraham's this important figure from which the, the Jewish people descended. And all along, God was welcoming in the sojourner, welcoming in people to come to know him and walk in his ways. But his people, like all people, would turn inward and forget about their calling in the world. And Jesus is calling them now to open back up. By the end of Matthew, we're gonna see again, make disciples of whom? Of all nations, of all the Gentiles, is another way to render that. All the other than Jewish people. Stop just looking to one another, now let's go to everyone. And we're the ends of the earth. But if we only wanted a savior for our people, I just have a feeling we would want a savior to knock down the other people. We'd continue the cycle of violence and sin. In the Cold War, they called it mutually assured destruction. You just arm up, you stockpile, and you scare one another to death so that you don't ever attack the other, right? And that's our safety. It's insane, but that's what we called safety. But Jesus is bringing a true peace into the world. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus' forgiveness, change our, it changes our posture toward the world. A few years ago, there was a, a man named Botham Jean who was sitting in his apartment and a police officer was off duty coming home she walks in, she doesn't realize she's walked into the wrong apartment. She's frightened. She shoots the man in his own apartment, Botham Jean. He's an African-American man. This becomes a part of the ongoing difficult conversation of race in our country. But months later, in the courtroom, there was an incredible moment. Botham Jean's younger brother, Brant, was invited to take the stand and make a statement she was found guilty of second-degree murder. And he 
forgave her. He says, I don't hate you. I just wish you would look to Jesus. I love you. And he, and he turns to the judge and he says, can I, can I give her a hug? And he walks out and he takes hold of her. And in that courtroom, as Brant Jean wraps his arms around Amber Geiger, it's like God was reaching through his black hands into this world saying, I'm not going to quit on you. No matter what you've done, I will love you and my peace will prevail for you and for this world. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. His steadfast love will never quit. And his forgiveness will change this world. I think it changed that courtroom. Why does Jesus matter today? He and he alone makes forgiveness possible. It's our fundamental need. It fundamentally changes the world. I just invite you to receive it today. Christian, receive it anew. Go to the cross. You need this. I need this. Don't let this crust of Christendom overcome you to where you don't think you actually need what Jesus came to do for you. Look to him anew and let him melt your heart. Neighbors who are looking with us, asking questions, I'm thankful you're here. I pray that you might just let that bit of guilt not be something that shames you into hiding, but that calls you into light and community. And you can just say, I don't know what to do with this feeling. I don't know. And we can together say, we just look to Jesus and we lay it down at his feet. And we can pray together a simple prayer uh, like we learn in the scriptures. Lord, have mercy on me a sinner. Have mercy on me, Lord, together at the cross. Jesus paid for every sin, even the worst and the deepest and darkest. I just call you there to look to him. He makes forgiveness possible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel of Jesus, the Savior of sinners. We praise you and thank you for him. Amen.